Happy Monday and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. Uh, the good news of the day, of course, is that that big boat is now floated in the Suez Canal. So the the world economy is no longer uh, blocked by that. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we have a debate about Satan panic and Satan shoes, which uh, some politicians appear I don't know. They appear compelled uh, to engage in. So uh, let's just jump into everything that we're talking about today. And, and our guest uh, is once again, a former Virginia Republican Congressman Denver Riggleman. Thanks for coming back, Congressman. Hey, it's just always great to be here. So can I just start off by talking about retcon, retconning? Because I, 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 I did my newsletter about this today. You know, a reader point out that all these all the uh, hipster pundits, including folks on uh, on the Bulwark podcast have been using this phrase retcon a lot. And she says, Hey, maybe you should define it for the rest of us. And I think there were some, you know, implied words there. Okay. I mean, fair enough, because I, I think it's a term that we're going to be using. Um, it, it's, it's short for retcon is short for retroactive continuity. And basically to retcon something is to introduce a piece of new information that imposes a different interpretation on previously described events. So it's kind of like, Think of it as, you know, historical revisionism without any shame whatsoever. So <laughs> yes, that's right. I was going to say revising your history, you know, based yeah. on some kind of information. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, obviously this is useful because you see that. So when, so when you know, the former guy calls into Lori Ingram and he's talking about the January 6th insurrection, he says, look, uh, you know, they're hugging and kissing the police and guards. They had great relationships. That's, 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 a, that's an attempt to retcon, right? Or you know, Ron Johnson, they were law-abiding citizens. I wasn't worried. There was nothing, you know, the let's forget the hang, you know, hang Mike Penn stuff. That's that's an effort to retcon. So this, you know, it didn't really happen the way it happened, right? I mean, isn't this, this is kind of like the, the next level of conspiracy theories is not just this is what's going on behind the scenes. This is what's going to happen. But what you think happened, what you saw with your own eyes happening didn't really happen. <laughs> didn't didn't we sort of used to use the word gaslighting or yeah. yeah or this other word that comes to mind lying yeah yeah just it just <laughs> but, but even even liars had a hard time just you know re you know rewriting all of the history okay so can I just play a couple of sound bites here because we speaking of like retconning Deborah Burks um one of the you know public faces of the Trumpian approach to the pandemic. Uh, this is an attempt to retcon. This is, this is, this is what she's saying now. That we, we could do it in either, either or. She, she's sitting down with CNN and she's talking about how terrible it was um, when she was working under Donald Trump and how he would call and berate her. But that, let's. This is Deborah Brooks almost exactly a year ago today. How would you describe the job President Trump is doing behind the scenes and in front of the cameras during these daily briefings that we're seeing? What's been your perspective, Dr. Burks? He's been so attentive to the scientific literature and the details and the data. And I think his his ability to analyze and integrate data that comes out of his long history in business has really been a real benefit during these discussions about medical issues. Because in the end, data is data, and he understands the importance of the granularity. And I think he's been really excited about finding the level of detail that we've been able to now bring over the last few weeks to really understand who's at the greatest risk for severe illness. 
you remember that that was when you know people's eyebrows went up and that boy you're really torching your your uh, your reputation by talking about how attentive he was how smart he was you know that was deborah brooks and and uh, apparently she'd like to retcon that because now she's sitting down with cnn and this is what she said this weekend well i look at it this way the first time we have an excuse there were about a hundred thousand deaths that came from that original surge. All of the rest of them, in my mind, could have been mitigated or decreased substantially. Okay, so Denver Riggleman, there's uh, there's Deborah Burks trying to whitewash, gaslight, uh, change 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 that all history that history because she's saying that enough to the first hundred thousand that could have been mitigated, we're at five hundred fifty-one thousand American dead. I. I don't think we should let her retcon that. I don't either. And I mean, if we're going to talk about data, I think you just said it as, you know, I'm a data guy. I mean, that's what I did for 20 years in the DOD. And, you know, I find it funny that the data right now is what, 550,000 plus dead um, with new variants and strains that are spreading at certain times around the world. And, you know, I find it interesting that even the tone changed. I don't know if you noticed that, Charlie, but if you look at that first clip, it was almost this effervescent, you know, I guess it was referring to the God King and his ability to parse data <laughs> at the level, you know, of algorithmic warfare levels, right? And now, you know, it's it's her trying to retcon, I guess that <laughs> word, or try, try, to, try to, you know, sort of distort history for her own ends. Because my guess, me thinks, she's having a tough time finding um, employment right now. Well, and also she understands this is her legacy. This is this was her big this was her big moment, and she made she made the decision, and she made it over and over again that she was going to that she was going to kiss up to the president. She wasn't going to push back on him. I mean, look, I mean, Anthony Fauci to a certain extent made that Faucian bargain as well, but he never went this far in saying yes. Donald Trump is not only slim and good looking and youthful, but he's, you know, that business mind of his, he understands the data, he understands and absorbs the science. I mean, that was, she just felt the need to bullshit in order to suck up to him, um, as opposed to say, hey, what we're doing right now is going to cost hundreds of thousands of Americans their lives. And you know what, that's, that's what she chose. And that's how she's going to be remembered. It will be. And, you know, I, th I find it interesting, you know, service is a, is a funny thing when you're serving at the pleasure of the president or when you're elected like I was, or, you know, if you serve in the military, I guess there's certain levels of service, Charlie. And, you know, for this right here, I do believe that some of these individuals that were serving knew that they were spewing sort of unadulterated bullshit, as you said. Mm -hmm. um, but I think too, that they thought that president Trump would win reelect. I think Maybe they got caught up in the momentum of it, or maybe they got caught up in the power of it. And I think that's the scary thing about service, Charlie, is you can get addicted to the juice, which is what somebody told me when when I when I officiated my same sex wedding, said, Denver, you're gonna lose. You know, you're why you know, you're gonna miss the juice. I said, Absolutely not. I, I think integrity is important. And Charlie, all of us makes make make mistakes in service. But you got to own up to it and be honest. But if something as important as a pandemic, you probably don't want to just sort of bootleg your way around the White House in order to, you know, to get some kind of favorable treatment or think that you have a future in that White House because you're willing to do that. So I, I don't think that can be overemphasized that being addicted to the juice. I mean, walking into the White House, being around the president and and what it makes people do. Um and 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 makes them makes them say okay. So here's another example of uh, of an attempt to retcon. This is actually one of my favorites of, of the weekend. Eric Trump. Eric Trump. Eric Trump goes on 
This is like a singularity. Goes on the Maria Bartiromo show and uh, and and on on Fox News and and the, and he's all up. He's very very concerned that Joe Biden has uh, spent the weekends at his Delaware home. Um, and so l- l- let's let's play this soundbite. It's worth noting that Biden spent this weekend in Delaware, his fifth trip home since becoming president. That's his sixth weekend away from the White House. We're not even 100 days in. Your reaction to this new administration, Eric? I don't even know where to begin. First of all, Maria, you know, it's heartbreaking to us. I saw how much time and effort my father put into the job. I mean, Biden saying... You know, well, I'm not going to go down there because I don't want to inconvenience the Secret Service. And then you look at Kamala Harris, who's standing in front of literally Air Force Two in that last picture where you've got the greatest ecosystem. You know how many times my father went down to the border? Because it's a serious issue that, you know, plagues this this country. I mean, you, you see it and you see these children. And my father had the issue fixed, Maria. And then fixed. Yeah, I, oh, I just God. I just love that whole the you know, fifth trip to Delaware home over the weekend. I mean, in, in the first one, just going back to the historical record in the first hundred days of his presidency, Donald Trump uh, went golfing 19 times <laughs> in the first hundred days. But it's he works so hard. So we're going to we're going to retcon that is Donald Trump just absolutely tireless. And he hey, fixed- Charlie, does, does Biden even play golf? Is that even a thing with with Joe Biden? I don't even know. I mean, that's oh. that's how out of touch I am with Joe Biden's you know golf um, proclivities. D- does he play golf? Do you know? No, no, apparently not. I, I I don't know. I mean, he can't even walk up the stairs. Isn't that the thing? Yeah. Speaking of, of, of I'm, I'm sorry to keep using the term, but the 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 retconning of uh, Do- Donald Trump comes out in public and talks about injecting bleach into people, you know, to deal with the coronavirus. And we're supposed to forget about that because it's Joe Biden who is senile. That's, I don't know, whatever. So, uh, yeah, I, no, yeah, I'm with you. I'm at, no, I'm absolutely with you. And that's the thing is that, and I know this is so, sort of crazy to Eric Trump, Charlie. So I hope you're prepared for what I'm about to say. Um, but in this new world, there's things called like telephones and computers, and you can actually do things like we're doing remotely. I know, I know that's nuts, but um, the fact that he wants to go home to Delaware Rather than rather than staying in the White House on the weekends, I just don't think that's really a thing. How about that? I just yeah, don't. I, think I, I, I don't think it's considering that like everybody in the world is working remotely, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. Really, like, I mean, this fine. is he goes home to Delaware. That's the issue. My God, man, you need to get a life, right, Eric? Get a life. You know, it's just crazy. Yeah. So in in terms of. I mean, in, in in terms of other things, just to, to oh, oh, by the way, I, I before I, I I move on, did, did you see the wedding crashers scene? Where um, <laughs> some some couple is getting married at Mar-a-Lago, and the wedding is crashed by Donald Trump, who comes and gives a speech, and he's supposed to give a toast to the couple. Instead, he goes off onto sort of his Trumpian grievance about everything. I'm <laughs> ripping Biden. I won the election, and at ten thirty, they said, "Sir, you won the election." And then it's like, oh man, it's like this is what we've become: is that Donald Trump has been reduced to the wedding crasher. And, and yet the Republican Party is still completely in his thrall. So, I mean, it's great. And I just got uh, from Jim. It said that Golf Digest listed Biden as carrying a six handicap index, one of the best golfers. So not only is he going to Delaware, he could beat Trump in a golf. Ter- I mean, in a golf match. Is, is it called a match? Uh, so in, in a golf tournament, I guess. So yeah. I, I find it interesting. Okay. So let's talk about some of the things that are going on, um, both in, in, in your home state of Virginia, 
and in and in Georgia. And you and I were briefly discussing what's going on in in Georgia. And I I, I know that I'm going to get ripped for this because in my newsletter today I said, look, I have a little piece on Georgia's original sin. And I said, look. I think we need to stipulate that some of the rhetoric around this new voting law is a little bit overheated. I mean, anybody that's actually studied Jim Crow laws knows the Jim Crow election law has all kinds of problems with it, but it's not Jim Crow. I mean, it's there were a lot of things in there that were really horrible that were taken out before. It d- doesn't mean it's a defense. I mean, there's a lot of problems with this, but I do think it's kind of helpful to take a deep breath to be able to discuss what actually is going on. So, uh, you know, again, I... My original, my 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 take on the Georgia uh, bill is that the original sin is that it was obviously inspired by Donald Trump's lies about election fraud and his attempts to steal the election. And I mean, and the problem is it strips power from the people who resisted him and gives too much power to the legislature. So um, I don't think it was a good faith effort. But a lot of the things that are being said about the law just seem like. Could we just step back and have a sort of a reality check about some of this stuff sometime? Yeah, it's uh, it's superheated rhetoric, and you know when you when you're a person who wants to see through sort of the crap of things, and you want to look at policy for how it stands. When you have people that are very emotional and they're hyperbolic, and they overstate things, and it's always this screaming, you know, about what's going on to make some type of political point you know, to keep those seats in Georgia. And we know that's, this is about the next Senate elections in Georgia. Right. You know, you know, we know that that's happening. And we also know all this screaming in this election law certainly hasn't helped Brad Raffsenberger, has it? And it, no, he's dead. And it, no, no, he's done. And, you know, and I know Jody Heiss running against him and stuff like that. And, and that's a shame, you know, that this is going to happen to Brad, but it's over. And, you know, I think that's, what's interesting about this is you got, you got multiple facets of this, Charlie. You got not only the, the screaming that it's, you know, Jim Crow in a suit. I think that's what I heard. Um, and I, you know, I'm thinking, come on, let, you know, we need to have a conversation. I might not be a, you know, a big fan of this bill, but if we're going to use rhetoric like that, it, it actually exacerbates sort of the polarization that you're seeing right now. And, and, and I believe in our country. Well, it also backfires at a certain point. You know, if you, if you make claims about something and, and, and it turns out not to be true, you've burned through some of your uh, credibility. Man, maybe I'm naive to think that credibility actually matters. Look, I don't, I, I think this bill is, is alarming. I want to make it clear. And I think that there's an attempt, you know, across the country in more than 40 states to rewrite election laws in bad faith. But the, but the real focus, I think, needs to be on the way that that they are empowering partisan legislatures to interfere in these elections and i and i do i do have a certain amount of paranoia about whether or not trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election may have only been a rehearsal for what's going to happen in the future because uh i don't think a lot of these folks are engaging in good faith but but again it's like can we just everybody i mean everybody's not satan speaking of no, satan shoes i mean satan, and, and, are we back we t- no, everybody isn't Satan. Not everybody is evil. And I think when you pit, when you have a two-party system, has it become that way, Charlie, where, you know, it's good against evil on depending on which side of the aisle you sit on. And if we're getting to that point where it's always emotional or when you're looking at conspiracy theories or stop the steal, it's not even based in fact when you have a debate. My goodness, man, we are going to have a lot of trouble in this country if we can't even come to the notion that there's actually good people on both sides of the aisle or you know, that there there could possibly be a third movement come out of this because you're right. People keep overstating this yeah. or keep screaming wolf all the time. Eventually, there's an anger and frustration that comes from the other side. Like, listen, 
I'm not a racist, right? I, I'm, I'm not a Jim Crow person. What are you talking about, right? This is this is out of control. And and it goes on the other side too, right? Where the left is like, what are you talking about? You know, right? That somehow we're we're Marxists or we're, we have a deep state cabal trying to take over. You guys nuts. And if both sides think the other side's crazy and it's good against evil, I don't even know how we get things done anymore. No, and 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 going back to Brad Raffensperger, I, I want to move on to Virginia, but you know, Brad Raffensperger was the guy that stood up against the lie, and his integrity played such an important role in the twenty twenty election. And I think that it, it really is so revealing that the people who told the truth, did their job with integrity, are the ones who are on the out. That they are being purged from the party. You know, I mean, if you want, it, it seems like a pretty good measure of the health of any political movement or political time and what happens to the truth tellers if we throw the truth tellers you know overboard um and 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 continue to uh, elevate the worst liars and conspiracy theorists well that does tell us about um how fetid our political environment is and brad well, Ravensburger, i mean he may not be a perfect guy but i mean this guy showed real integrity and real courage and he's going to pay a price for it Yes, yeah, a, a spying can get you in trouble. And yeah. I never thought that facts-based pariahs, you know, you know, was what we would turn out to be because I know what, how he feels. Trust me, I get mm-hmm. it. And I just didn't think I'd be the radical in the party. I mean, I, I am a radical. I use facts and that makes me a radical. And you're right. That, that is certainly a health check, brother. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, it's a health check. Well, and speaking of other uh, canaries in the coal mine, uh, you're you're in Virginia, and I have to say, it's from the outside. I'm I'm in Wisconsin. We have our own problems. Okay, I mean, I I I do not I do not, I ju- I don't judge because I mean, Ron Johnson's our senator, but uh, what's going on in Virginia? And this is not a necessarily a new thing, but you know, here's a state that used to be reliably red, now has been trending blue, and instead of tacking to the middle, uh, it seems like your fellow Republicans are doubling down on some of the things that cost you your own seat. I mean, the leading candidate, uh, you know, is, is it true that, I mean, the leading candidate for governor right now is is one of the most extreme proto-Trumpians out there? Yeah, a, a pure QAnon believer where uh, she uh, yeah. she staged herself in front of QAnon flags you remember that? Uh, remember that time down in? Uh, remember those good old days down at the Philadelphia Convention Center when you had those two idiots with QAnon stickers on their vehicle, want to walk around with weapons? I don't know if you remember that or not, Charlie. Oh yeah, uh, those two were volunteers for her campaign here in Virginia. They had driven from That's Virginia wonderful. down to Pennsylvania in order to try to affect some type of change. I'll put that in quotes. Um, she is. She honestly is batshit crazy, and I think. That, that's part of the issue that we have is that it seems like the extremes in the Republican Party are dictating some of these candidates. And by the way, every single candidate, every single candidate, Charlie, has started an election integrity task force. And as you know, we can talk about election integrity, but that word is now a cover term for stop the steal. So just like we were talking about Georgia, Virginia is infested with stop the steal believers and, uh, and conspiracy theorists. And at the local level, at the committee level, I would say that the facts-based uh, individuals, the pariahs who are screaming that we have got to have a party, a Republican party that has to be facts-based and policy-based and idea-based, they are really outnumbered. I would say still probably 70-30, 75-25 in these committees. And so that's why you're seeing the Republicans run so far to the right. I mean, they're, they're, they are just way over there and they, they're hoping they can tack back to the center. But I, I just don't think that's possible with the endorsements that they take and things like that, which are horrific endorsements. I mean, 
people who are racists and bigots and conspiracy theorists, and they're accepting these endorsements like they're, you know, candy corn. And it's just unbelievable. Well, this it, it, it becomes self-selecting, right? I mean, it becomes self-perpetuating. If you're a normal person and you just show up at one of these meetings and you spend half an hour listening to these people, you go, this is not a club I want to be part of. I don't want to no. be a part of it. So the normal people, the normies, are in fact uh, disincentivized to hang out and the the extremists then become more and more dominant. And in Virginia, unlike, say, Wisconsin, we, we still have primaries. We still have open primaries. You folks actually have, have narrowed the focus. You have conventions, right? Conventions and caucuses and stuff. Yeah, it, and there's no other way out of that. There's not a convention where you have the top two, then they can do a primary, or you have the primary system to fall back on. You only have one thing, and the Republican Party has chosen this sort of, uh, this, uh, uh, I guess, winning by subtraction methodology of these sort of corruptible conventions with little convention fixtures that run around right and try to manipulate the nomination process to favor one candidate or the other and it's and it's and it's so stupid charlie i wish i had better words it's 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 full of hubris and stupidity and little stalins that run around trying to control this and you know and then when you do walk in and watch these little stalins in these committees it's like you're walking into a star wars bar you know and you're like get me the hell out of here right it just the things that they talk about and discuss and what they think is true that isn't and they're just inability to see beyond their own little tiny specific faction uh, that they have. And, you know, and that's the issue. Now, have I seen it on the left? I have. And, and I talked about this, Charlie. But the mm-hmm. thing is, is that we can't be we can't be the hold my beer caucus. Right. We yeah. can't. Be the, you think you're nuts. Wait till you see this. And I got to, it's it's frustrating. It's discouraging. And it makes it very difficult for me to be a Republican here in Virginia specifically. Well, and this does seem to be happening in a number of different states. And I've talked about this before on the podcast where, where you see the Virginia Republican Party shifting in that direction. The Arizona Republican Party has been crazy for some time. And and there are real consequences for that. I mean, this, this does make it more difficult to win general elections, you would think. Because it sounds like these folks are more interested in talking to themselves than it is than they are talking to persuadable voters. By the way, also Ohio, same sort of thing that you're seeing in the Republican Party uh, wow. there. So, uh, speaking of conspiracy theories, and I know that you're kind of you, you've been an expert on on conspiracy theories and all of these things. The the my my sense is that is that things are not getting better; they're getting worse. Let me just bounce that off you first. Then I want to get to the 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 the, uh, the Dominion lawsuit and whether that changes anything. But it, it feels as if we've tested a lot of the ability of the party to uh, you know resist the crazy, and they've failed again and again. I mean, January sixth was really sort of the basic test, I think, of of uh, of, of the how, how far would they let Donald Trump go? What would they be prepared to believe? Um, and well, we know what the results are, but my sense is things are not getting any better and won't get any better anytime soon. No. And you know, I, you know, I'm the chief strategist for the network contagion research Institute. Also, we just did a, did a data pull on how these conspiracy theories are morphing. They're evolving. And what we've seen is now, and and it's really like, uh, people, you know, tuning back into Elvis, people are tuning back into the new world order conspiracy theories and they're sort of wrapping that in anti-vax, but also in the same child trafficking pedophilia stuff that you saw with QAnon. And it's really interesting to watch that a lot of this is being run and you're seeing it from, uh, I guess, organic health, you know, sort of institutions, people that are trying to peddle products. And Charlie, just like with QAnon and the amount of money that these individuals could make in selling fantasy, like monetizing insanity and then weaponizing it on January 6th 
You see people monetizing this anti-vax fervor, this new world order fervor, right? Even in, and you're still seeing this old QAnon stuff, right? Like the Mike Flynn storefront for QAnon hats and T-shirts. All all this is a follow the money grift that's really been weaponized against people. And and I think that's the thing that we're seeing out there is that it is getting worse. It's not getting much better. And I know I, f- I find it so funny. People are like, well, we deplatformed all these people, right? We've, we've cut them off. Well, that just drove them to other areas. We saw a mass migration to Zello and MeWe and Signal. And, you know, and I'm sort of scratching my head saying, guys, the more we deplatform in some respects, right? Some people we want to take off the net, Charlie, don't get me wrong. But if you deplatform, these private companies continue to just deplatform uh, over and over and over again, even if something sort of touches the edges of crazy, what happens is they migrate and they become even more radicalized in sort of closed systems. And then we can't see what's going on. If you're looking at open source sort of collection like that I do, and I'm trying to find what's going on in our group is, what happens is if they go to encrypted areas or they go to trip code encrypted areas or whatever, it makes it very difficult for us to identify those individuals that could be radicalizing or even calling for violence. So over the weekend, um, Dominion Law, uh, Dominion Voting Systems filed a one point was a one point six billion dollar lawsuit against Fox News, and 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 if a lot of this stuff is grift and it is following the money, I guess the question is, does that have the potential of making any difference? Not necessarily in the far reaches of the fever swamp, but as a real brushback pitch against you know folks like Sidney Powell and maybe even Donald Trump who have been peddling flat-out lies. I mean, up until now, basically we lived in a world in which there are no consequences for the big lies. You could say anything. You could make up anything. But $1.6 billion, that focuses attention, doesn't it? It really does. And, you know, with Sidney Powell, you know, uh, you see what happens when a grifter is trapped in their own, tra- you know, their old rat trap. You know, she's all about self-preservation now, Charlie. Um, it's, you know, no reasonable person would believe that, you know, the crap that I spat, uh, that I spout. Well, yeah, obviously, um, they wouldn't, but you weren't talking to reasonable people. And, but, you know, I saw something, we were looking at some of the traffic and Charlie, you're going to, I don't even know. I had somebody say, well, it was brilliant what she did because, you know, she was able to say, you know, we shouldn't believe it, but we should. And, and the fact is she's turning it back on herself. And as you saw, Sydney Powell, I don't know if you saw this, Charlie just came out yesterday, said she was going to have more, she was going to have more evidence in two weeks. It's showed this election was stolen in the next Jeez. two weeks. You think and, she would and, shut up? I mean, no, she, well, she, yeah. she has to push forward because you know what she's doing right now. She's raising money. Right. And it takes about two weeks, you know, for some poor person, you know, you know, in a community to write a check for $25, lick the stamp, send it to her 501 C4 or send it to her defense fund. It takes about that long for the check to clear. So two weeks is about that time for her to collect as much money as she can. So if you keep saying, you know, it's two weeks, it's two weeks, this is all about her uh, collecting money and gathering money for her legal defense. I mean, she is really, she has no shame. Um, and the fact is, is that we really have to get in front of these type of, of shysters and grifters and these people of such low moral character uh, that they shouldn't be part of the conversation. We just need to stomp them out. But it's very difficult when the kind of money that's rolling into all of these grifts and fantasy lands it's very difficult to, to, to parse out all those echo chambers, Charlie. No, it, it is. I, I do wonder, though, the the lawsuit that has been filed against uh, the networks, the, the the cable networks, does appear to have slowed their role on on peddling some of this. Uh, I, I noticed that the right wing outlet, the Gateway Pundit, which is pretty uh, woolly, uh, is actually calling out uh, Laura Ingram, calling her lost and rude because um, she wouldn't let uh, wouldn't let Trump engage in some of the 
conspiracy theories because she won't believe that that Trump the election was stolen. So you at least you have some of this I, again. I I think it's getting it's getting worse. Um, but it, at least you can see that there's that little voice in their in their ear saying, you know, um, maybe you ought to maybe you ought to watch the, the the bullshit you're spreading. Well, you know, and the thing is, Dominion is a very attractive um, client for attorneys who want to make uh, examples, uh, you know, out of networks because people know that the networks have money. Right. And, you know, that's the, that's what I was always, it was always a head scratcher to me, Charlie, when I watched Fox or even one American news or Newsmax, when they're spouting this stuff or allowing these individuals on the air, I'm like, is there going to be some kind of blowback for this? And I can't imagine there wouldn't. And Dominion took their time. And I think the reason they took their time is they had such a strong case, not they had a weak case, right? I mean, they're like, where do we start? I mean, we, you know, we have all this documentation, right? We have all these things that are recorded because you know what I think Fox forgot about is all that stuff is like forever, right? When you, if you, if you say that it's forever and now you have this issue where how do you backtrack off that type of tripe? I don't know how you, I don't know how you moonwalk out of that. I, I just, I don't know. And I think there's going to be massive settlements, Charlie. I think massive settlements. And I think it has sort of uh, put a crimp in some of these people's agendas, uh, especially when it comes to talking about stop the steal and things like that. Well, you would hope so. Okay. I wanted to get your perspective on something else as well. You're a former uh, Republican congressman. You have, you still have lots of ties. You still talk to a lot of these guys, right? Oh, sure. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we know that there's a group of reasonable, it's a very small group, a, a, a reasonable group of, of Republican centrist. Some of them are still conservatives. Um, you know, some of them who at, at tremendous political cost, political risk stood up against president Trump. We had 10 of them who voted, um, you know, to, to impeach the, the president. And I wanted to get your perspective on this because I'm sensing that there's a bunch of them in both the house and the Senate who would really like to work with the Biden administration, who would like to cooperate with the Biden administration on a variety of issues, who don't want to be obstructionists. And yet, you know, now that we're, what, 60, 70 days into the administration, it doesn't seem like much of that is happening. Most of the major legislation has been passing on absolutely strict partisan grounds, not one Republican voting for Biden's uh, stimulus, uh, you know, rescue plan, the COVID plan, not one Republican voting for HR one. And we could probably go through a series of other votes as well. Give me your sense about the mood, because what I'm sensing, and and some of our listeners are going to be annoyed by this, but that despite all the rhetoric about unity and healing, uh, the administration has not made it easy for Republicans to cross over and vote for some of these big pieces of legislation. And I just want to get your perspective on that. Sure. I mean, I voted against H.R. 1 uh, when I was you know, in Congress. And the reason I did was I thought the six to one taxpayer match on money was absolutely egregious uh, in the way that it was tracked. Um, and I thought the voter ID just sort of this, this total almost abdication in some areas of this because I read H.R. 1 was really bothersome to me. And some things I agreed with, obviously, right? Charlie, I did, you know, yeah, and sure. some things I didn't, but I but I thought the bill could have been improved. And there wasn't a lot of participation in HR1 from Republicans initially, right? And when you have HR1, it's like, well, if you vote against HR1, you're a racist. Well, that's bullshit. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, so now, but there's another issue here. 
It does make it more difficult, but the Republican conference itself is fragmented. And I'll give you an example of Adam Kinzinger. You know, he has an opponent, Catalina Loff, right? Yeah, so I, right. the sewer of American politics runs through my phone, to be honest with you, Charlie, because people, <laughs> people, you know, people still want me to run mm-hmm. and people want me to run for governor of Virginia or they want me to run again for Congress because they knew what my, my favorability rating was during that drive through convention. I mean, I had a 68% overall favorability rating and that was Republicans, Democrats and independents. And I still lost a 2,500 person convention because they mm-hmm. disenfranchised, you know, two, 300,000 people which seems to be the way the Republicans do it now. But now, however, what do you do in a Republican conference when you have Catalina Loff, who's going to probably outraise Adam Kinzinger? Think about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I talked to some consultants. I want to give you a scoop here. They think the Trump team is going to spend $5 million against Kinzinger alone, $5 million, just mm-hmm. from – just from that group. I'm not talking about all the other fundraising that this individual can do. For, so what for, happens one, when, for one congressional seat. Yeah. Uh, oh, she's she's going to raise. And and I talked to Adam. He thinks it's going to be well north of $10 million, maybe 15 to $20 million for that for that seat. Oh, my. But she's in the middle of redistricting, right? You got that issue also. And then you're, you're having this internal fight between, you know, when I talk about facts-based pariahs, that Trump has so much power where certain caucuses – Within the Republican Party, the Freedom Caucus and other caucuses, you know, that really are down the line, the RSC in the Republican Study Committee. Sorry, Charlie. You know, so (laughs) you have all these areas where he has so much power and you have centrist Republicans that are absolutely terrified. Right. To even step across certain lines, they can go out and say, stop the steal was crap. They can do that. But they still got to get stuff done. So what they're worried about is if they vote for some of this legislation, they might agree with on the Republican side. The punishment is going to be absolutely severe for stepping out of line on some of these. And these people want to stay in. I had an individual tell me, Charlie, and this is going to blow your mind. And I and I got to tell you, this is one of those philosophical questions that I don't know how to answer. So, Charlie, you might have an answer for this. He goes, Denver, if I vote my conscience 70 percent of the time, but 30 percent of the time I vote against it so I can stay in Congress so somebody crazier than me doesn't get in then maybe I should do that. And you know what example they use for that? Mm. My opponent, Bob Good, who's a complete QAnon conspiracy theorist, but I refuse to bend my principles, right? And and people said, you should have, Denver. You screwed up. You should have bent your principles. You should have apologized for certain things. You should have you should have been more political. We know you weren't in politics to begin with. So that, that Charlie, I lose sleep over this because now I'm not the congressman in the 5th District and we got somebody who actually might be unhinged that has real issues and how do I how do I square that? How do I square that now? Right? I stood up and said I'm going to officiate a same sex wedding. I'm going to vote for streamlined immigration. I'm going to do some of these things, right? But I still voted against HR one, right? I still voted against things I thought were wrong. But there were times I took votes, even me, where I was fifty fifty, and I went with the conference. And so I lose sleep over all of this. Did, was I completely true to myself? Should I have been completely true to myself? And by being true to myself, more or less. Did I allow somebody crazy to occupy that seat? This, these are the things that go through. And by the way, whenever they use stop the steal language in their fundraising, their fundraising explodes for these grassroots candidates. It so, works. so that's the issue, Charlie. I know I just, that was a lot to unpack. No, it's, it, it is, it, it is, it is the fundamental argument that people have to make. You know, how, how do you, how, how do decent people navigate in decent times? And yes. particularly now the pressure to cave in on to abandon principle uh, is is as strong, if not stronger, than ever before. I'm, I'm trying to think back 
when you know as a litmus test um you you had to uh, take positions which were absolutely intellectually indefensible just as a matter of of course it, it is the intensity and this again is is the fallout from trumpism that it just demands things that you know and and the price uh keeps going up i mean the price of this faustian bargain i mean the cost of the faustian bargain just keeps rising and the problem is that once you've made that decision, you know, the 30% decision to abandon your principles, well, then it becomes so much easier to go? do it the next thing. And and there's there's no going back. So, I mean, you know, going back to this question, though, so if you're a Mitt Romney and you've already voted twice to, you know, convict the president, at this point, what possibly do you have to lose? <laughs> You know, he can't write. I mean, you're already cast into outer darkness. Adam Kinzinger, he has nothing more to lose, right? No, he doesn't. And, you know, I remember, Charlie, you want to hear something intensely personal. I uh, I was having such a tough time on a bill. I'm not going to tell you what it is. It was so awful. And I remember um, there was some information that was held back from me by some certain people that I needed to make a decision. And I, and I can go with, I'll tell you over a beer one day or a whiskey, and I think you will freak out. But I was so angry over this moral, like sort of, I had this crazy, you know, like, what do I do? I mean, I got so angry. I remember smashing my television controller against the wall. Like, I mean, I threw it like I used to be a baseball pitcher. Right. And, you know, and my staff was looking at me, I'm like, this can't be where I have to make this decision. And I mean, I remember, you know, I was only six or seven months in as a congressman. I'm like, both of these decisions are awful. And you know why? Because I only had two, because it was a Republican and Democratic decision. There's not this ability to flex one way or the other on some of the decisions. If you want to keep your committee spot, if you want to help your district, if you want to, if you want to compromise on some of these bills, if you want to get something through committee, you got to play this game. And I remember just this, this fury. And um, and you know, and I learned how to control it better as I went on, but because I'm actually sort of just a sweet guy, but but I also, when I get angry, I get angry. I mean, I wasn't a bouncer for nothing. I wasn't a military, <laughs> right? And so, you know, but it, it just gets to the point, Charlie, is how do, how do you square it? I, I, you know, and then I'm thinking there has to be a third way. There's got to be a third party. There's got to be something else out right. there that we can get away from this polarization, this hyperbole, and this finger pointing that each side is equally or worse evil than me because they have a D behind their name or they have an R behind their name. And that is... That is what's happening is it's good against evil on each side. And those lines are being drawn. And my fear is it's just going to get worse. Yeah. As long as it's a binary choice, it's all, you know, all one way or all the other way. And, and I do sense that that's getting worse too, because you can sort of see that, you know, among Democrats, uh, they become frustrated. And so there's a, a drumbeat, uh, forget about bipartisanship, uh, you know, you know, abolish the filibuster, and which is fine. But, you know, when you have only 50 votes in the Senate, understand how quickly that, that can flip. I do think that at some point there needs to be a third way to break the sort of binary choice. Uh, I, I, you know, it's interesting. You've heard this, I'm sure, in the past, the, the, the cliche you know, that I vote for the person, not the party. Well, that's become in some ways incredibly silly because – you know, the, the, the it's so silly. You're, electing, you're, you're electing a team member. Like, I mean, whatever you tell oh. yourself, whatever voices in your head, that person is not going to be some independent representative. Um, they're going to, you know, sit in that conference, that caucus, and they're going to vote the way they are told. And they're going to have to swallow what they're going to swallow. And so the whole I'm voting for the person, not the party thing may have seemed like a good idea at one time, but it's completely obsolete as long as we have this two party binary system. 
it's, I think I'm an example. I think Justin Amash is an example. I think, I think you have these examples of individuals who said, I am a person, right? I'm not part of this. I'm not just a cog in the party apparatus. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get your face ripped off, right? <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's pretty fast too, because what happens is you're going against the team, whether they're right or wrong, whether their policy is yeah. ridiculous, whether they're immoral, you're actually kicking sand in the team's face um, when you're trying to do something you think is correct. I know that I'm sure that'll be played over and over again, Charlie, but that's the <laughs> issue that you have is that I was willing to say, you know what? No, I'm not doing that. And, and when I kicked that sand in the face, even though I knew I was right, I knew there was going to be blowback. What I didn't understand, Charlie, being fairly new to politics, even though I thought I was barely smart enough, um, was that the anger for going against the team trumps the decision that you made out of integrity. And that's the issue you got to fight with if you're going to be in office. And how do you navigate that system of money, of, um, I would say, influence, but also playing the game well enough to get to a committee seat, whether you're a ranking member or subcommittee chair or a committee chair, where you can affect even more change for your district to get reelected. And again, it goes back to it's that getting reelected thing that trumps service, because if you don't get reelected, you can't serve, but you've got to swallow a lot of crap in order just to get to those portions. And I just simply couldn't do it. And you I know, think that's an issue. It is interesting, this whole obsession with being loyal to the team, which again is not completely new, but there used to be a path for mavericks and independents. And I'm thinking back on, I'm not going to name it because things didn't work out that well, um, but we had a congressman from Wisconsin who um, back in the 1990s wouldn't go along with a spending plan that uh, Speaker Newt Gingrich had. And he was kicked off, if I'm remembering this correctly. Uh, so he, he wouldn't he wouldn't go along with Gingrich. Gingrich then fired him from the budget committee for not voting a certain way. All right. This actually served to propel this congressman's popularity back home because he said, look, I stood up to them. I voted my conscience. And that was a viable path. And as far as I know, paid no significant price for that with the electorate or among donors in any way, and that's completely gone now. It's kind of hard to imagine having somebody like that or a William Proxmire whose career is based on the fact that they're an independent, they're a Mavic. So let me ask you one other thing, though. You know, given these these hard-line partisan votes, is there, in from your point of view, and the, and the Republicans that you talk to, is there something that the Biden folks could be doing that they're not doing now without surrendering? So, you know, there was some talk about a compromise on the stimulus package. Uh, the Democrats say that the Republicans just weren't going to give them enough. They wanted to go big. They're pretty happy with their decision. So what is your sense? If you were advising Joe Biden, how do you get some Republicans to cross over? Is there anything he can do? Or is the dynamic that you just described so powerful that it's not even worth trying? Well, the first thing that you have to say, if they're, that if, if Joe Biden goes out to the Republicans and say, listen, you know, that $1.9 trillion bill, maybe we shouldn't have had a half, you know, billion dollars for the National Institutes of Health. I mean, not health, I'm sorry, for the, for the NEA or, I mean, the um, National, uh, what is it? The Arts. Yeah. National Endowment yeah. for the Arts. Yeah. 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 National Endowment for the Arts. 
um, or, you know, for, you know, libraries or whatnot, you know, this should be a COVID specific bill. We also understand there's some things that are pretty egregious about how we're streamlining funding to certain segments of the population, the socio demographic side. And, you know, we're, we're listening to you, but it's not that, you know, you guys are evil because of COVID. I think it's the name calling. I think it's sort of the, right now we always have now this tough guy thing going on with Trump and, and with Biden. Right. And I think that's what I would say is like, listen, there are people that really want to work with you. However, I can also see where the Democrats are like throwing up their hands because the issue you're running into is president, former president Trump, the former guy. Um, and the thing is, if you try to reach across a little bit and you show any type of, I don't want to say, listen, you're, you're, you're negotiating from a position of strength. Right. And, and, and that is, there's a lot of responsibility there. And, and, and when you're negotiating from a, from this sort of position of strength, even if it's just nominal, there are certain times where you should say, listen, that's a good idea. Maybe we should do that. You're not going to see that right now because of the polarization, but certainly, you know, making the border more transparent, um, not trying to paint everybody as evil who think that, you know, immigration, you know, should be controlled. We should have a secure border. And then of course, but the issue that you have is that the Republicans will paint their own evil if you talk about amnesty or DACA or anything like that also. So I don't know, Charlie, I mean, I would just say, listen, first of all, include some Republicans in your damn cabinet. Um, you said you were. And include some sort of moderate center-right vo- voices that can be in your ear um, with some of the crazy that could come from the from the far left because it's it's happening. Right. And once you get to critical wokeness, you are going to see a 2022 GOP run on the House. Um, And I think if he if he tried to come out and be a little bit more moderate in his language towards the GOP and include some center right individuals in his cabinet or center right individuals on the Biden team, I think you would see a little bit sort of a lessening of the of the uh, I guess of the anger that you have between each. But right now, I just think, Charlie, we're so far down the road. I, I. I listen to my GOP colleagues and, and there's some good guys and they're like, there is nowhere to work within the administration. Last thing I've talked to some of my democratic friends too. They don't want to work with any Republican that voted um, not to um, count the electors. And that well, is, I, I, I get that. Yeah, that's, I, I do. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's a problem. So yeah, you know, on, on the issue of of, of immigration and, and the and the border, um, this is this is again part of the hangover of of the Trump era, because I, I remember, you know, when immigration reform was bipartisan. You know, people forget that with that gang of eight, that there were what sixty seven votes in the in the Senate yeah. for for an immigration yeah. reform bill. There was an overwhelming majority in the House for it. Uh, Paul Ryan was an advocate for it. Of course, they didn't move ahead on it uh, for you know variety of reasons. Um, but uh, the the possibility of uh, bipartisan immigration reform seems absolutely zero to me right now. Well, I talked to a immigrant um, who immigrated here 39 years ago, 40 years. Well, when I did this, so now it'd be 41 years. Um, I, if I'm getting, I hope I get the number right here, Charlie. 41 years ago um, was here when President Reagan declared amnesty. Mm-hmm. Uh, this individual told me he will never not vote for Republican, no matter what. Yeah. Um, I find it interesting that we can't even talk about some kind of limited amnesty uh, we can't talk about immigration reform. I think Republicans need to embrace immigration reform. They need to embrace immigrants. Um, and I'll tell you why. When you're in a rural district like me, you know what the two biggest things we deal with are H-2A and H-2B workers. Sure. And right. And so, you know, as I look through immigration reform, that's why I was such a hawk 
on immigration reform is I thought we need to actually embrace immigrants, these people who want to, to better their lives. We, we can't demonize individuals because they're trying to get their kids over here. That is absolutely, what are we doing, right? That is, you know, when you're looking at Numbers USA or you're looking at even Club for Growth and things like that, you're like, what are you doing, right? This is, yeah. you know, are, are, you, are you racist? I mean, is that really where we're at? But there's something else to this too. You have to have a secure border or you don't have a country. And since I did border ops in 2010, since I know what happened, I've been there, I've done that, been there, done that. When you look at the things that go on on the border, we have to have an incredibly secure border. And everybody has said, let's secure the border completely. And I agree with that, using defense in depth, whatever you want to do, let's secure the border. If we can couple that with looking at the 11 million plus that are here, knowing there's no way we have the resources to send them all back, and I'll put that in quotes, why don't we open up and be more, I would say, transparent? And I'll tell you this. Remember when I said it's very difficult to track people if they keep deplatforming people? Well, I'm going to humbly submit this. We are deplatforming immigrants and we're frightening them where they don't want to come forward to the criminal elements of the illegals that do come over. What if we opened up our doors? What if we said, come on in? We're going to give you a path, but you have to self-declare. Please self-declare. So if you're having issues, if there are bad actors out there that are coming across the border, you're not afraid to come to law enforcement and identify who those people are. I believe it's a national security issue on two fronts. I think we should secure the border completely. But if we have a streamlined immigration plan where people are transparent and we accept them into the fold and we get their data, not just for taxpaying purposes, but to give them part of the American experiment, I think we can do both. And I think if Republicans do that, my God, Charlie, I, I think we could change change the world, man. And and but again, that's pretty idealistic on my part right now. Well, there were a lot of Republicans that at one time agreed with all of that, you know, and just in case anybody missed your, your reference to Ronald Reagan's uh, amnesty, it was amnesty. There have been a lot of proposals since then that have provided a path to citizenship that have been called amnesty. They really weren't amnesty. They were paths, you know, with fines and all kinds of other, you know, hoops to jump through. But um, there was a time when the most conservative Republicans were willing to embrace, you know, that sort of a, approach because they understood that, that, you know, America was dynamic. The definition of American was dynamic. And unfortunately, we're going back and, you know, in, in, in order for people to be more transparent and self-declare, they have to believe that they're dealing with a government that is dealing with them in good faith. And in I'm just, good faith. That's and I'm right. just not sure that they, they're going to have that confidence given what's happened over the last several years. I think that's something that we need to rebuild. But if you, I'm actually, it's so funny you asked about this, Charlie, and we got to this point is I'm doing an op-ed on how the GOP should embrace immigration, that we should use our ideas and innovation to fix this rather than ceding that territory to the Democrats. But on the other hand, we're not just ceding it to Democrats. Maybe we just need to be more human. Maybe we just need to say, hey, we understand there's an issue. We can't have you know uh, illegal immigrants pouring over the border. That's ridiculous not to have a border that's secure. It's actually, it, it, it's a national security issue. But it's also a national security issue, right, if we don't recognize that there's already illegal immigrants here who are trying to participate in the American way of life, and we have the ability to reach out to them. And I think, again, I think there's a human issue to this, and uh, I think we can do both. But, again, that's a guy who's been in business and military intelligence, not necessarily a politician talking right now, Charlie. Denver Riggleman, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. We always appreciate it. That was great. Thank you, sir. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow. And we will do this all over again.